Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to the Matan Podcast. I want to remind everyone that we're in the middle of our Women in Writing series, and today we have, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Tamar Weissman, who is a licensed tour guide and has spent the last two decades teaching Tanakh and Israel studies to women. Before moving to the North three years ago, she was a lecturer in Matan's Jerusalem branch and is the current coordinator of the Matan Summer Programs in Zoom and in person. She is the author of Tribal Lands, the 12 Tribes of Israel in, in Their Ancestral Territories, which we'll have a chance to speak about today, and please God also working on some upcoming books. Tamar, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, we've sort of worked in parallel for a while, and there was a time when also we were teaching in the same room one after the one after each other, but been a long time since uh, since I've seen you, so it's great to see you here. Especially when we went in different directions, you down to the south, yes. and me up to the Galil, and uh, and then I came back. I came back to Yehuda. I, I it was it was a little too. Uh, it was a little too far flung for us, but we'll, we'll get there. I really would like to hear about your journey because it really is intertwined so deeply with a lot that you write about. So we're going to, we're going to please get there. Okay. Um, I really always like to start off these conversations with, with the personal aspect. Uh, and I really want to ask you, about your connection with the land of Israel, which is, you know, runs through, it seems from afar, everything that you're doing, both in your writing and your living, uh, and your working. And so I'm, I really, I would love to hear how that, how that got started, your, your whole connection with Israel. Thank you. I so appreciate that question because I think that I strive for, um, your question to be accurate to my life, that I really do see my life or the aspirations for my life to be deeply intertwined with living in Eretz Israel, with learning as much as I possibly can about Eretz Israel, with writing about Eretz Israel, with absorbing Torah Eretz Israel as much as, as, much as I can. Um, but I have to say that the journey did not begin in childhood. Um, I had very little exposure to the idea of Eretz Israel, Medinat Israel, until I came here for my gap year. Um, I grew up in a more, I wouldn't say Haredi community, I would say Yeshivish community. And my formative education from kindergarten through 12th grade was in the Beis Yaakov school system. And I am very, very grateful for that experience. I think that it gave me a tremendous background in Bikiut, in understanding the breadth of Jewish texts, especially Tanakh, but it did not give me any exposure or a value system uh, related to the Jewish experience in Eretz Israel, other than through study of tefillah and how it would naturally come up in Jewish studies like Chumash and, and, uh, and um, Halacha. Um, but when I came here, and I was driving, or I was being driven in my Sherut from Natbag to Hare Yerushalayim for the first time in my life. I had, I think, a sense of deep awakening. It was, the, it was 11, 12 at night. And um, as I was driving towards Yerushalayim and I was looking around me at the landscape, I just felt a shift. And that shift has stayed with me. For the entirety of my life, Bezrat Hashem, I should always feel that shift, that deep sense of longing and belonging to this land. Very hard to articulate, but always sits on me, uh, not as a burden, but uh, I should say maybe sits under me, like lifts me up. And I felt it at that moment. And then it, of course, deepened as I was privileged to study with, I think, some of the great luminaries of uh, the world of Talmud Torah from 25 plus years back. Um, and I, I deeply, deeply enjoyed that experience. Even though I went back to America to continue my studies there, I knew that I would be coming back here. I didn't know in what capacity, I didn't know what, I want, what it was exactly that I wanted to do here, but I did know that it would be here and I did know that it would involve Talmud Torah. So, um, Beis Yaakov, I would say, gave me the foundations to understand the breadth of, of Torah 
Midrashat Moria gave me the depth, the Iyun study, the beginnings of the of 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 a sense of what it meant to do a deep dive into the secrets of the Torah and the possibilities of Talmud Torah and melding those two together in Eretz Israel, perhaps is what we mean by Torah Eretz Israel, the breadth and the depth, but rooted very much in, in the land itself. Can I, I wanted to just respond to that piece. It's always so funny when you meet someone and you recognize yourself in that in that journey, right? I, I could see myself in in a lot of that very visceral description that you that you just offered, beautiful description, and I would describe it in many and everybody's journey in their uh, in their love relationships and marriages are very different. But I feel like it was a very similar process. It's that process, at least for me, that of, of falling in love, where you meet somebody and you say. Oh, that's so funny. I just met you for the first few times, but I feel like I've known you forever. And it's this feeling, and that to me is that belonging that you're speaking to. Of I also, I, you, know, you and I are unique because oh, I was in Israel once before I came for the year, but you came for the first time. And already in my age bracket, it was a little bit more rare for the first time for someone to come to Israel be for their year, which today sounds like preposterous. Um, but there was there were two young women in my group Group, who was our first time in Israel was when they came for the year, but but even you know I was here once for one summer when I was when I was thirteen, but it's that feeling of of a homecoming of I I didn't know you until now but but it seems that I did there's a deep part of me that knew you and so when I've come to this place I I feel that sense of the parts fit together right it's like the batteries were put in and the the, the mechanism is able to function in a much fuller way. Very, very much so. And it was startling and a beautiful moment that I have almost on a daily basis. It hasn't left me. It's, it's that blessed experience of being in love. And like any relationship that we hope for, it's a relationship that grows deeper and deeper with time. Um, and as you know your lover more, then you always realize there's a, there are fresh encounters to be had totally. because I really do see the land as dynamic and, and the, our ability to have a relationship with the land is exactly parallel to our ability to have a relationship with a person. I think of the land as evocative, as uh, mysterious, as fascinating, and it's it's and I'm most fascinated by how people, including myself, respond to the land. So I know that this sounds a little bizarre and abstract, but um, I think that it does, to a certain degree, ring true for many of us as we drive through the land, as we explore the land, that we have fresh encounters with the land. And God forbid, should they ever go grow stale? Yes, I guess like any relationship, when you're used to something, ups and downs and, and uh, ins and outs, and it doesn't always uh, maintain that same excitement as, say, that initial meeting. But, um, but like we say, when, we, when, when men bind themselves with tefillin every morning, that that it should always remain an erusin moment, uh, that, that excitement of, of the, the initial cementing of a relationship. It should be fresh. We should be bound to Kadosh Baruch bound to this land with that freshness. So that is what I strive for and what I think comes naturally, not only to me, but to so many of us, this deep love for the landscape and for Eretz Israel. I know that we're going to delve deeper into this in the conversation, but another piece that I think is also intrinsic in what you're saying is how visceral both kinds of relationships are, meaning an inherent paramount dimension of our human relationships is a physical relationship. And what's also so exhilarating about our relationship with Eretz Yisrael is that it is a spiritual connection for those of us who are engaged or believe in that, that we deepen through a physical connection with the land. And obviously that, that through working it, through visiting it, through seeing new parts and going on to Ulim, um, it it really it really is it's so it's so invigorating and you know when I even when I go on a little tour with my children we went last Friday and it's it's fun but it's a deeper fun 
And that for me is what is constantly rewarding in, in this life that, I, that, you know, I've chosen, you've chosen, and many others have chosen, uh, is that it's a, it's a fun that goes, that goes much deeper. So it's, uh, exactly. I think of it as a, a, an emotional connection, but that is rooted in the Sikhli, just like Talmud Torah. If there's no passion there, if there's, if it doesn't evoke emotion within you, then there's improvement to be had. The, it, with Talmud Torah, with Limude Eretz Israel, with exploring Eretz Israel, there must be that basis of, um, like I said with Beis Yaakov, the Bikiyut that was brought to fore. There has to be that, uh, the basis of, a, of, an, of understanding what it is that we're seeing of a cognitive experience. But that cannot be what Talmud Torah or what Limud Eretz Israel or relationship with Eretz Israel is in its entirety. There must be an emotional element. There must be passion. There must be responsiveness. It must shift us. It must change us. And so that is the, I would say, the, the approach that I've always had towards Talmud Torah and the approach I've always had towards um, exploring Eretz Israel and guiding Eretz Israel. And um, I think really is the correct approach. Before we dive really into into the book itself, which we're already really talking about, actually, because it's at the essence of, the, of your book, <laughs> but I just want to um, just want to really make a deeper nod here to your. Um, Beis Yaakov training. It actually came up in my conversation also with Simi Peters, who also was co- came out of the, ba- the Beis Yaakov system. Uh, and she had what to say about the Beis Yaakov system now, but certainly in in, pre- in previous decades, she also really spoke about a rigor. Uh, you're speaking about a breath, a breath of Torah, which is a phenomenal thing. That they're able to, and I have friends who, who were from the Tilumi families for all different reasons, went to a real serious Beis Yaakov for elementary school. And I had always... Um, guessed that, you know, if I ever, I never thought I was going to, but if I ever was going to have children, I married in Israel, but if I was ever going to have children in America, I was like, well, maybe I would send my kids to a basic elementary school because I feel like for women particularly, they really offer like a certain rigor and, you know, we're not going to, you know, and, and that's really something very unique. So I just want to say that in your, in your approach to me, Drash, which we're going to get at very soon, I, I, I would wonder if some of those, those pieces, they really do come out there. There's a certain rigor and a certain vastness and, and also a reverence for, for the whole world of Torah, which I think is a phenomenal thing that you able, are able to really also trace it back that while you know what you didn't get there, you also know what you did get from that education. Exactly. Very much so. And when I do say Bikud and breadth, I do, I want to pair that with what Simi was saying about rigor. From I, I still I, I have a children's book that I read to my kids that I received in second grade, and there was a little inscription um, in the book that it was a gift to me for having memorized um, sixty some odd Mishnayot and Perkei Now some of them are you know as short as Lefum Tzara Agra, right? but it was still an accomplishment that they expected of a second grader, and the Yediot Kaliot that we could not graduate without. One had to pass the Yediot Kaliot test in every single grade in order to move forward. One had to memorize in fourth grade all the Birkot Yaakov. One had to memorize um, the Birkot Moshe in sixth grade, and then Shirat Zavorah and segments of, of uh, Yeshayahu. Not everybody agrees with that pedagogical approach. I have to say, though, that Baruch Hashem, it served me very well because it was not only exposure to Pshat as you alluded to. It was also a very prolonged, for, for the entirety of my education there, exposure to Parshanut and Midrash. Midrash delivered through Parshanut because we would have tests, an eighth grade test, where we would have a couple of words of Rashi and we would have to say, what is the deep, we would have to write there, what is the Dibor HaMatchil of that Rashi? It was, it was an extraordinary Limudzei Kodesh education and I will say that I don't, I can't comment at all about the current Isyakov system, um, but I can comment on um, the education that my children have received and are receiving here. And it, there is no parallel 
to what it is that I received. So I am very, very grateful. Yeah, this is a theme. I, I please God, I plan on doing a series about it uh, in the in next year, but this is a topic that is has come up in many, many, many episodes. Um, you know, and I've mentioned, I don't know, I think in every episode that I have four daughters, you also, among your beautiful group of mm-hmm. of, of children in your home, I, I definitely have seen a whole bunch in, in the pictures. Um, and it's it's a real topic. The rigor is, is not there. Uh, I know in my own home that we try and, create that rigor in the house and we do send our children to the most rigorous option that there is again because it's it's right for those it's they're they're capable of it i don't say it's right for them i don't totally believe in that sentence but they because they're capable of it and i want them to strive for excellence okay and i'm really glad that you're going to devote time yes. to that because it's an extraordinarily important topic yeah it's it's really it's it's critical okay so let's let's talk about the book that you you put out already um was it five years ago how many years ago was it more than five years ago i think it came out in uh 2015 2015 okay i guess i'm stuck before corona right so we're we're uh, <laughs> time stopped so so your book that came out which i i want to hear how the idea came about and i also want to say that um our lives have also had this interesting parallel because I wrote my doctorate on the tribe of Levi. Um, not at all from the topographical perspective. I don't have any, that tour guide part is totally not, uh, doesn't exist within me. But uh, I'm curious how you got really into the whole Shvatim piece. Uh, I know for me, it also came about after a shir that I had taught in Matan years before. So I'm curious how uh, how it happened. Well, the topic was really rooted in my role as a tour guide. In that at the time, I was pregnant with my sixth child, and it was a complicated, difficult pregnancy, and I could not guide. Um, So I was thinking, how do I lay the groundwork, do something fresh and new for Bezrat Hashem, the time when I will be able to return to guiding? So I thought that it would be very interesting to look at the Nahalot of the Shvatim and to try and understand the contours of those Nahalot and to develop itineraries so that I could use them in my guiding. So I could come out with a series of guiding the Nahalot. And I needed to understand what Nahalat Dan looked like and what Nahalat Naftali looked like in order to be able to come up with those itineraries. But that very, very quickly moved into a realization that in order for me to, to effectively guide the Nahalot, I really needed to have a deeper and better understanding of the Shvatim themselves. And that brought me to this mechkar and the excursies, what started as excursies and then developed into the chapters and the real thrust and focus of the book, which was the personalities of the Shvatim. And then it almost became an afterthought to work on these itineraries, but it was a natural, very fast and easy development to think of not necessarily guiding the Nahalot, but why each Shevet was given his Nahala. Because if we go, if I wouldn't say under the assumption, but with the given that the Shvatim were not just drawn to different areas of the country, but there was a certain divinely ordained decision to grant each Shevet his Nahala, then there must be something about the track of land that Asher was given that deeply speaks to the personality of Asher. The same way that um, I was drawn to live in a certain area of the country and you were drawn to return to a certain area of the country, uh, the Ishvatim the were, were uniquely suited to the Nahalot that they were granted. So the book became mostly about an exploration of the personalities of the Shvatim and then a... Um, a suggestion or suggestions or thought, uh, thinking about why the Shevet is suited to his Nahala. And then each chapter is, is capped off with a tour of the, of the Nahala and um, kinds of just wearing my tour guide's hat is what you should see in this Nahala to get the most out of your Naftali experience. It's, yeah, it's, it's great. I also really want to say you're a wonderful writer and I, I, 
you have a real fluidity in the way that you write and, and your word choices. You feel you feel that richness. You really bring that to the to the paper and to the mind and hearts of, of the one reading. I've used your book. I've used it when I've taught taught different classes. And I'm also also curious how is writing something you've always done? Meaning you're you're a tour guide, right? You you've made your career right. in speaking and being with people. And I'm curious that that kind of richness of writing it doesn't just show up. I don't think when you're writing in your 30s or whatever age you were. But yeah. I'm curious where where did that start? Thank you for such high praise. I was not a writer, and it's still difficult for me to think of myself as a writer. Although more and more as uh, I've taken on more projects, I do start to think about the craft of writing much more. This, this particular book was not born out of a sense of, um, of, of me taking on a new profession as a writer. It just was an easy birth. I find that when there is something to say, if it's said passionately, then it, it is delivered it, it is well received and it it is easy to deliver. Um, now I know that that sounds uh, a little bit cliched or a little bit too too trite or too easy, um, but I found that this book came extraordinarily easily, and it could very well be because it was already organized. You have these twelve shvatim. Your chapters are right there. You're not dealing with, you are definitely dealing with concepts that have to, and sometimes very complicated concepts that then have to be translated well um, into the written form, but a very complicated structure. So that definitely helped me. And this was a book that was birthed very, very easily um, for a, for a first birth, <laughs> this is, it was an, um, perhaps an outlier and an exception to other writers' experiences. I found that my subsequent writing projects were much more difficult than tribal lands. Um, I guess perhaps because also this was, as I said, contained within that structure. And when you, how long did it take you to write it? You know, before I knew who you were, by the way, I used to see you once in a while writing in, in the Hebrew U library, right? It's where you used to sit because you were living <laughs> in Malay Dumim. Yes. I don't remember how I once connected who you were, but I think, I think, oh, I know why, because I was starting to research my doctorate and someone I knew from Malay Dumim said, there's this woman who's writing about tribes and she lives in Malay Dumim. That's how it happened. And, and some, and anyways, I remember seeing you there. How long did it take you to write the book? It took me about a year and, um, I want to say a year and a half from start to finish, but there was a pregnancy wow. in that time that, you know, and a, and a, and a newborn and, and um, yeah. all of that complication. Um, it was, it was a, a lovely thing to birth this book along with this child. Totally. Um, it was, it, it, and it also gave me a tremendous motivation because I knew that you know, there was going to be a time when I would not be able to be as productive. There was no better deadline than a due date. Exactly. I gave in a doctorate at 39 and a half weeks pregnant. I know exactly what you're talking about. 39 and a half weeks, I drove to the university with contractions. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know that that deadline definitely works for productivity. Hebrew U was a fabulous place to gestate this book um, and to to really be productive. Their library is open to everyone and it is a fa- fabulous resource. I, don't, I, I assume it's still open to everyone. I don't have an academic library at my disposal now. Um, but I, so I do yearn for the days when I had that available to me. And, um, and again, I credit my, my base of education, my Midrash at Moria education, my continuing education in, in other Midrashot, Matan and Nishmat to an easy ability to, um, to research the sources, to understand the value of different sources, to be able to categorize those sources and use them as effectively as I felt I could possibly use them. So I want to ask you about that piece, about your sources. Mm-hmm. The book itself is a big mix, okay? It's a big mix. It interweaves psukim, it interweaves uh, midrashic readings, it obviously interweaves the topography that we've spoken about. Uh, and I, obviously, people with an academic orientation have, you know, different um, different boundaries uh, regarding their usage of different sources. And I'm interested to hear for you, what is the 
line between uh, harmony and cacophony of sources and approaches, meaning where where is your, again, you're, you're not coming, I don't know, right? But I don't think you have, do you, you don't have a doctorate, right? Or a or master's in informal in something Judaica, you know, Midrash or something like that? Actually, I do have a master's from Bar Ilan, oh, okay. and that was my first extensive writing piece, which was the thesis. It was on Josephus's exegetical methods. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and why he made the, exe- that, the, the exegetical decisions that he did. Yeah. Um, yes, but I, I do deeply appreciate academic writing and academia in general, while all the while knowing that um, it was never going to be my voice. Although I do believe very, very strongly that um, in order to be effective in writing Torah for me, and I'm only going to speak about for me because I guess there are many different ways to write Torah, but this was true to my voice. Everything I said, I said and say and continue to say must be sourced and must, uh, it must be a reflection of the Misora. And I see myself very much as just a link in the Misora, as translating that which I have been taught or that which I'm learning um, into the written form or in giving shiurim as a, as, as a natural chain, as we've all been been taught to think of the Misora. And so um, there, this book is copiously footnoted, not only because I'll say it definitely made me feel safe because I, I feel like that is important for especially the, the, the beginning beginner writer of Torah to have that, that feeling of confidence and safety and being rooted in sources, but also because I just believe that what my role is, is to learn these sources, organize them, present them in a meaningful and effective way, and, uh, and act as a transmitter. I think that you were very successful in doing that. I want to actually ask a very specific question. So let's take, you mentioned before, uh, a share. Okay, a share is allotment. There are very few, if if none, uh, narratives about a share in Tanakh, mm-hmm. right? Of, you know, you have tribes where with, in terms of narrative, there there's a lot about them, obviously Ephraim and Yehuda, and there are those where it's just much richer. And then you have tribes where other than the bracha, the blessing given to them by Yaakov and Moshe, you really have very little to go on. So in the case of someone of, of like a share, so there are fascinating midrashim about a share, particularly the women of a share. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just curious, and when you speak about being a part of the transmission, the, to- the, the Tanakh itself doesn't really tell us much about a share. So for you, that means now it's my opportunity to dive into the midrashim about a share to understand the personality or the character of so that you can get to the depth of why they're connected to their nachala. I'm really asking you about like methodologically yeah. where that takes you. If there's no stories to move off of, so where do you go from there? I think that that question is a fascinating one because it demonstrates in a way or it, it explains your approach to Talmud Torah. Yeah. <laughs> which is first we go to the shot and we hope that the shot provides, right? And then and and then we can look at sources beyond shot. And in a way, um, as as you've described this book is in a way interdisciplinary or um, syncing, syncretizing different disciplines, different different modalities together. That is uh, has been my approach to Torah, which is not even necessarily to ever look at shots without without utilizing the lens of Chazal. I don't even understand uh, such a way of learning. I've, I've been exposed to it through Midrashat and through Matan, but, um, but it does not come naturally well, to me. Well, because this is where your base Yaakov is coming out. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. coming out right here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that's why this is such a, you know, a rich conversation that we're having because you're really talking about two different methodologies. Where And as I get older, and as this relationship with Torah deepens and this relationship with Eretz Israel deepens, um, I, I appreciate more and more this, I would almost say like a holistic rather than a linear approach. Um, and 
It is um, an approach that takes as a given that I cannot wring everything that I can possibly wring out of, out of shot unless I utilize the most sensitive readers of shot that, that um, we call Chazal. And so for me, Chazal provide the lens to understanding the Torah and not just an isolated pasuk, but because their bikiyut was unparalleled and their, their understanding of the Torah as an essential wholeness and unity is unparalleled. And that allows me to uncover the richness of something in its much broader context. And so if you, for instance, if we're talking about the Bnei Yaakov and then the Shvatim, it's impossible uh, to talk about the Shvatim without talking about the Bnei Yaakov and, and vice versa. I can't talk about, say, Shimshon without talking about Dan. And I can't talk about Dan without talking about Rachel. And, um, and, and the entirety must come together in order, I felt, in order for me to be true to, um, the, to, to my task, which was to do the very best that I could to translate for people who Asher or Dan was beyond the few psukim that we have on the life of Dun or on the life of Asher, because he's so much broader than that. They are both so much broader because their experience runs from Breshit through Devrei Hayamim. And so what Chazal allow me to do is to play with the Torah, is they allow me to see the Torah as we have a Sefer Torah and we unfurl it and we fold it back into itself And we see that we cannot just look at one isolated piece without looking at the entirety of of everything dealing with any any isolated piece that we might be trying to to fully understand. So if we're going to take it back to, say, the Shvatim, then I can't deal with Don without talking about his conception and anything that might have happened to him. I take Don just as an example, because I, I happen to be thinking a lot about Don now in my current writing project um, on Shoftim, which where Don factors very, very strongly. I can't think about those psukim dealing with Don's conception without scoping forward to the B'nai Don in the Micha narrative. And I can't think about Don without thinking about the Ma'asef. And I must go forward also into considering what happens with Don. And, Midrash allows me to do that. It is that beautifully indirect teaching that awakens within students of Midrash a, a beyond a delight, a sense of, uh, as we opened with, the sense of deep love for the possibilities of Talmud Torah. Because it's not, I'm in conversation with, with, uh, the, with, with those who are far uh, more sensitive and far more um, exposed to Talmud Torah than I can ever be. And so it's learning from the best. You're saying when you're working with Midrash A, you feel very much that you're a student of, of the teachers of Chazal, and so that that you're you're sitting there in Chazal's classroom. And I, and I think that you are spot on, and I believe, and I really think that your approach is very much a continuation. Chazal are the archetype of a holistic, integrative, uh, also harmonizing, and also sometimes very dissident, depending on what which midrashim you're using and comparing. But they, you know, literally look at the Torah as one big, you know, scramble, and they, you know, pull things from different places. Very often, they're pulling things, as you said, with tremendous sensitivity to the psukim themselves. And that, I think, is also something that Rav Meidan has taught, and Yael Ziegler has also mentioned that she has taken this very much from Rav Meidan, that very often, Chazal, if you understand and look and study with rigor, are offering an, a very, very deep, pers- deep perspective on the Pshat itself. But, but either way, that you have really a sense of a scope and of an integration of all different relevant sources and that yes it doesn't have to play by the rule book of of pshat or of things that are more specifically literary in that kind in that kind of study uh, although chazal themselves were tremendously literarily sensitive they just didn't have the same sense of that rule book didn't exist for them their rule book was was timeless right. was boundless was did not care about genre and 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 it, it just simply 
they're different rules. That's all. They're simply different rules. But to me, there's the Chasal's rule book is the only rule book that that speaks to me and is really the the way that I delight most and find the most love within Talmud Torah. And um, I will say I have not had prolonged exposure to what I would consider the more, let's say, Dati Lu'umi uh, institutions. Um, perhaps in a, in a, at some point it would do me well to learn a different rule book. But I can say, though, that um, when a name broke, don't fix yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> Definitely I totally hear that. for me. <laughs> Yeah, I totally hear that. And so you you wrote this book, and and it's uh, and it's a really beautiful beautiful work. And you've already mentioned that you are working on some other projects since then. Uh, I, I notoriously, your profession has had a rough past uh, year and a half. Uh, I don't know if the continued writing projects was in response to the fact that you know tourism died uh, for a while. But uh, I'm curious what. What are you working on now? And uh, and is that for you, has that been a direct consequence of the previous book that you did? Like you're more open to writing now that you did it? How is that, how's that worked for you? The book I'm working on right now, yes, is uh, um, it has been developed in large part to the lag that we as tour guides are all feeling. But it was, um, Baruch Hashem, a very welcome respite, I feel, for a lot of my colleagues Um Obviously, everybody would like to be working, but it allowed for an enrichment of knowledge and, in some cases, people going back to university for another degree, um, taking um, online courses. And for me, I had the time to really start devoting to this third writing project. I'll go back to the second one in just a bit. This third one is a natural continuation from Tribalands. I feel like... uh, it's exciting to find my voice again after the the second child, so to speak, which is, is still a work in progress. But this third book um, is picking up right where Tribal Lands in a way left off in that I was always drawn to Shoftim as the most tribal of Sfarim within Tanakh um, and as the most bizarre, outrageous Sefer the wild child of Tanakh, as I like to think of Sefer Shoftim, um, which is which is just as rich stomping ground as exploring the personalities of the Shvatim. Maybe it is that I like working with a whole lot of different personalities as opposed to other Sfarim, which really deal with a couple of central figures. Um, and so Shoftim is, with, with Shoftim, it's obviously has to be structured differently because it's not as organized as um, as 12 tribes. It's a sefer. Um, but I am going to try to um, approach it the same way, or I think I am approaching it the same way as I am, as, as I did with tribal lands in um, seeing the sefer as almost a nexus point, as a transition between what happened before, what comes after, and how patterns are revealed by Chazal through Shoftim, where if we see, for instance, um, I'll tell you what I've just been working on right now, with the Micha cycle, where the Levi, who has been invited by Micha to serve as his priest in his shtibel, in Micha's ad hoc temple, um, is described by the Pasuk, Now, if my Beisach of Bikyut was really up to snuff, then I, I would be able to say, that's oh, Moshe. Okay, Moshe and Moshe yeah. Exactly. So, which it, you know, which is where Chazal are going to make that leap for me and enforce me to examine the context of the Moshe Yitro relationship and what came from that Moshe Yitro relationship and how in any way it can um, inform the Micha narrative beyond the fact that Moshe's grandson was this very Levi. I need to know something more than that. And Chazal will deliver a far deeper concept, uh, which I'm not going to get into right now. But um, that is what what drives me, what allows me to hopefully be effective in my writing. And um, it, is, it, is a, it is great fun. If you don't find writing fun, then you shouldn't be doing it. This is, uh, that's, that's really what I believe, that it should be, um, a passion project, but it should also be delightful. And so, um, 
So that is what I'm working on right now with Shilton. The in-between, my liminal book, which is um, which I have handed over to uh, Batna Deepa Karmi Weinberg, because we're doing this in ca- collaboration. We had always intended to collaborate on this work. It's way out of my wheelhouse, um, not as not coming as organically and easily as the Shof Dim, and definitely not as Tribal Ends did. Um, but this is again true to Midrash, um, where we're presenting the Midrashic approach on Esther. Um, Yes, following the text, but really, and I think here is the, the very novel element based on the Petichto in Mesechet Megillah, where you have um, upwards of a dozen introductions to Megillat Esther that are offered by Chazal. And Rav Yochanan, Petachle Petcha Mehai Parshata Mehacha that when Rav Yochanan would give his drashan, Megillat Esther, he would start from left field, from a pasuk that has nothing to do with Esther. It definitely wasn't from Megillat Esther. And so the, the puzzle, the fun, is in trying to understand what Rav Yochanan was trying to, what saw as the central focus of the Megillah through the pasuk that he chose to quote, because these p'tichtot are lomuva melav, not very clear at all. And through that, uh, through the prism of these patiktot, offer the sustained midrash of, of uh, Mesechet Megillah. Do you consult with academic works on those on those topics, or it's really you both creating from from your hearts and souls? On this one, not at all. On Shoftim, um, academic works, I very rarely like to look at secondary uh, treatments. I really just um, try, I try, and I did this with tribal lands as well, although I am very drawn to apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature as primary, as primary sources. I mean, they are our earliest midrashim. Exactly. <laughs> Other yeah. than Debrei HaYamim, yes, they are earliest Correct. Debrei HaYamim is one of yeah. the earlier midrashim yeah. and, and a lot of the apocrypha. Um, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and um, so I do like running the whole gamut of, of those, of midrash and then seeing how parshanut will translate or deal with, utilize those midrashim. Um, but secondary literature, I, I come to very, very late in the game. It happens to be with tribal lands, there was nothing, at least not that I found. There, was, there were a few treatments, but um, nothing sustained. And so um, that, that I kind of took I, I, my manuscripts on faith that uh, I had done the, the material justice to the best of my abilities. Um, with Shoftim, obviously, there's a plethora of, of, of uh, written material out there. But if I didn't think that I was offering something fresh and new and, and maybe even groundbreaking in a presentation, then why would I do it? It would just be a waste of my reader's time and of my time. Oh, then it also might not be what your readership that you're that you're who you're writing towards. It's also might not be what they're looking for. Exactly depends who you're who you're looking who you're trying to speak to. I don't. I really just believe in presenting something that is that hasn't been done before, or perhaps even hasn't been done well before. Um, so that is that's where I am now with Shoftin. It sounds wonderful. I'm sure that it's going to be a, a really meaningful, really meaningful read for for so many people. Bezrat Hashem, are you going to be putting it out through the same publisher? Not sure. It's too premature oh, okay. at this point. Right now, you know, you got to love the journey and the process. Meaning, it wasn't a commissioned book. You've decided to write it, and you'll find someone to publish yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'll uh, ever have a, a book commissioned. <laughs> these, are, these are you never know. You <laughs> never know tomorrow. It depends. You know how much you write. You never know. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit about where you're living right now uh, and how that connects with everything you've spoken about until now, about your love for Eretz Yisrael, about a, a feeling of, of coming home, about feeling the tribes, essentially, uh, living and feeling their reality. So in your introduction to, to Tribal Lands, you write really beautifully about the border between Naftali and Issachar uh, and, and where you're currently living. And I, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about that. Um, what brought you there? Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a question for the ages, as my kids would say. 
because uh, obviously they were dragged along on the journey. Um, I wouldn't say kicking and screaming, but they've all Baruch Hashem made their piece of it and and are thriving too. Baruch Hashem. Um, I had always Ira and I, my husband Ira uh, and I, had always been drawn to the Galil from when we were first married. Um, when we came to Israel as an engaged couple, we had the freedom to uh, to go exploring. The land, um, I was not a, yet a tour guide and I hadn't even thought in that direction, but we did do a lot of Tulim and we were always drawn back to the Galil. And it could be the quiet here. It could be the lushness. It could be a sense of, of, um, of promise and of opportunity uh, where for whatever reason, our experience in the Merkaz, which was a blessed experience, everywhere that we have been in the Merkaz, every single community, Ranana, Nofayalon, Maladumim, has been a bracha for us. And they, these are just fantastic communities that I so enjoy revisiting and the relationships that we were able to make there. But we were drawn here. Um, and it was, I would say, around five, six years ago when um, we were, actually, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit beyond, before that, um, around 12, 13 years ago, when we were on the cusp of, of moving from Nofai alone to, uh, to a different place. We hadn't yet known which place, and we came and explored the Galil at that point, and um, it didn't click. And so we, we found our home in Malaya Dumim, thank God, um, which was so formative for our entire family for those eight years we were there. But there was a time five, six years ago when Ira had started a, um, a shift of his own. And that was when he began reading and learning much more about farming and about leading a self-sufficient life and about um, having a relationship with the land. And that had been a piece that was missing for both of us we didn't quite know how to articulate it, but when you live in a city or even a yeshuv, um, there are those who are naturally drawn to planting and to providing for themselves. And that had been neither of us. I was the queen of Chad Pami and, <laughs> and online ordering. And, and, um, and this definitely was not on the landscape. But then he became more and more interested in this and said, I really think that in my life, I would like to see things from the beginning to the end. I would like to hatch a chick, raise the chicken in its natural habitat, eat from the chicken's eggs, slaughter the chicken myself, cook the chicken myself, and, and enjoy that and have a relationship with the, it, I use that as an, as, as a, a, an analogy in a way, or one, one example of a much broader theme of having a relationship and a deep understanding of nature and the land and, and not just from an academic um, or, or let's say minutak uh, or, or distant perspective, but actually being involved in what that means to shecht a chicken that you have raised yourself and how to do so compassionately and eat with, eat that then with full appreciation of this of this other creature of God. Let's not forget this is how the world functions exactly. up until not that long exactly. ago. Exactly, but it was it's, so it's far. not such a far off concept. There are some of us who have been so you know entrenched that you know it's hard for us to. I, in my heart and in many ways in practice, live how you're describing. I don't live on a farm, and I live in a you know I live in a very populated neighborhood. But I I understand and completely sympathize with everything you're saying. I think that's the modern condition, and that definitely was our condition. Um, and, um, Ira really was the one who said, I, I, I think that I need this in my life. And I think we would, we need it in ours and we can all do well by this. And we can see the cycles of Bria in an intimate way. And this is what I want in my life here in, in this world and in Eretz Israel. And this is how I will deepen my relationship with Akadosh Baruch I think that there's much of the Torah, by the way, yeah. <laughs> that we can't understand. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it's kind of like when you spoke about before when you're in Beis Yaakov and you're in fifth grade and they're teaching you Sefer Dvarim. And I'm always like, how do they learn that book if, if, uh, if you don't talk about the whole like Israel thing? Like you just, everything becomes a metaphor because like the whole thing is about living in Eretz Yisrael. And, and I think also so much of the Torah is so theoretical 
if you don't actually live a life that is somewhat agriculturally familiar. It doesn't have to be a self-sustaining, you know, from farm to table lifestyle. Not everyone is able to to handle that personality-wise or economically. It's not sustainable for them, but um, but you know, just even if you just talk about the Torah piece, right? So much of the Torah is based on a life that is agrarian, and so I think a lot of things become much clearer and, and come into focus when you at least live a life that's somewhat connected to the land. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And if I were to, to what what draws me say to this landscape is the ease with understanding the um, the Battle of Gidon versus the Mijanim. What draws Ira to this landscape is the soil quality, the ability that we have and where we are right now to grow things and to see these processes and to experiment and to understand what it means to birth a goat and to incubate chickens and to um, and to build a large fence around your olive grove to make sure that the predators then don't attack your your livestock and everything that's involved. And as he goes deeper and deeper into this, he kind of draws me along, not not by force, but because I then become more interested in this. This isn't this isn't my natural passion the way that it is for him, but Misrat HaChaklaut was offering a goat cheese a cheese making course. So he's like, "Yala Tamar, let's let's learn how to make cheese. We have this goat milk. Let's do something with it." Um, and so uh, that is every Tuesday for five hours. We learn how to make cheese. And there's wait, there's- wait, I <laughs> wait, I really Tamar, you and I could go on. I I could. I'm with you. Like I um I'm only a few steps away from the farm. Really, I am. I just I wanna I wanna though that piece about where you're physically living about okay. the 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 tribal piece. Bring bring us to that piece. Okay. okay thank you for. For bringing me back to no, I could passion. go as far along with you as you'd like, but I see <laughs> yeah. our time as well, and Let's I want I want us to hear that. goats back to Naftali and Yisachar. So it happens to be that Steilan, which is um, the the meshek that we found, we found the meshek, we found the farm, and then we found the community. And Baruch Hashem, they go hands in glove. A beautiful, beautiful community. A moshav dati. Uh, up here in the lower Golan, in the Galore Galil, excuse me, um, um, with, uh, with salt of the earth, wonderful people who give us from their vast stores of knowledge, happens to be that the Nachal that runs right smack dab through the Moshav is Nachal Adami, which is known in Sefer Yoshua as Adami Hanekev, which forms the northern border of Yisachar and the southern border of Naphtali. So, um, on my daily walk, I'm walking from Yisachar and Naphtali and back, um, a landscape that was very, very foreign to me as a Bat Yehuda, and I would say living, you know, elsewhere in the center of the country, more Ephraim area. Um, and um, now being up in Yisachar and Naphtali, um, I, I feel that it has opened up new paths for me, new ways to understand the world. Um, I, I don't like to um, put the cart before the horse. I don't like to say that, okay, I, I have discovered these things with, within me, and so naturally I'm going to relate them back to what it is that I know, which is the personality of Yisachar, who's the Jewish farmer and the Ben Torah, and the personality of, of Naphtali, who is the binder within the nation, the communicator, um, he who can connect the different elements within Am Yisrael. Um, but I think that when you change your landscape and when you move to a different place, Shonem Akom, Shonem Azal perhaps is at work, that you find different kochots and you find yourself responding to your reality differently. And that definitely has happened with me. And that's what I was trying to uh, relate to in this introduction to, to the second edition. And that's why um, I had asked Rabbani Chani Targan to relate the Yehuda piece. She who is in Alon Shvut and your stomping grounds and, and, um, in, 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 and very much uh, a, a deep friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who I had always seen as in a way the voice of Yehuda par excellence and um, how these different elements within Am Yisrael are also reflected on in the landscapes in which we both chose to make our homes. So um, I, I was happy with this move. I am happy with this move, and Bezrat Hashem, it should bring much bracha. No, I mean, it's a, it's a big one. Also, you know, you're moving with kids of all, all different ages. Yeah. You know, some who will remember this as 
their home and others who this is a right a big change for them. You know, you what you're speaking to reminds me of a of a quote that I love from an Irish poet philosopher, John O'Donohue, who wrote, uh, he passed away tragically a few years ago, very, very suddenly. Uh, he's, he wrote a treatise on beauty and, and a bunch of other things. And one of the things that he speaks about is he said that when you wake up in the morning, you should look out onto a landscape that is more alive than you are. Uh, and that that we draw so much strength and 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 uh, and and a vitality from the landscape around us, and for everybody that means something different. And I, I will just share personally that when we lived in the South, we were living essentially in Chalat Shimon, and I want to thank Shani Terrigan. Oh, she's featured nicely in this episode today. <laughs> she actually pointed this out to me, and she's like. You don't want to live in Shimon. This is already when I came back, when we came back to Yehudan. My husband was born Yerushalmi. He was not happy living in Shimon. It did not work well for him. Uh, and, and, uh, and I hadn't thought about it through the prism of the Nachalot, but when, when she spoke about it that way, I said, wow, that really, she said, you, you, you're Yehuda. Come on, you're classic Yehuda. What are you, what are you looking for? You know? But, uh, but what I wanted to say was that what we didn't realize, and you're speaking about the opposite. You're speaking about, a sense of coming alive and a sense of, of things becoming more vibrant and the colors becoming even more, even more bold as you made this change, which may have been catalyzed by your husband more than you, but, but that it has shifted everything for everyone and, and mostly in, in blessed ways. And it was interesting because I really experienced the opposite and we weren't expecting that. Meaning when you move, you move, you know, two hours away, you're moving far from family, you're changing gears in life. When we had, you know, quite a number of children and we weren't, you know, we weren't old, but we weren't so young anymore. And, uh, and what we hadn't expected was how much the landscape would, if it's not good for you, how much it would be, how much it would bother us, how much it would really cause like almost like an internal, like middle depression of, and, and I, we lived right on an Agam, right? And I was, I ran there and that was phenomenal. We, we really, we love going out, my husband and I. It's, it's really, um, critical for our survival of being out in nature. But, and that was phenomenal. Five minute walk going around the Nagam, a, a man made lake and, and really just a lot of beautiful, uh, a landscape there. But if we drove two minutes, we were in complete and utter desert and there was nothing around us. And that was not right for both of us. And, and, and I, and in that, those two years that we were there, uh, I really thought about that quote from, from Donahue, that, that piece of, for some people, the desert around them feels alive and full of promise, right? That's, the Torah given in the desert. We, we've heard that word before, right? Um, and for some people, the desert is that for them. And for us, it wasn't, right? For us, the desert just was empty and we needed, we needed growth around us. We needed the green. We needed to breathe that, that oxygen. Um, but I think that what you're speaking to is also this point that I really encourage all of us listening to think about of what are the landscapes that make us feel alive? Uh, what, what are the, what are the, what is it around us? You know, when I look out my window, and it's a little bit crowded around me in the neighborhood I live in, but I look out my my window of one of my my overlooks, and I see the hills that I fell in love with when I was much younger, and that is invigorating to me. And so I love this journey you're bringing about about moving to this border between Naftalini Sakhar and and the self sustaining vision that you're putting into practice day in and day out. Uh, you, you put it very beautifully and, and circling back to that quote by Donahue, was it? Yeah. Right. And the, um, about the landscape being more alive than you are in those early, early morning minutes um, just is exactly, I think, uh, our responsiveness to where we are right now. When I think about Mala Jamim and I think about my neighbors who daily will post these gorgeous pictures of the northern part of Midbar Yehudan and Haray Moav. And they're just the most stark and, and evocative pictures. And on my daily walks, I would say that it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me the way that it works for them. They're not, it doesn't inspire me the way that it inspires them. And my landscape is a field 
And yes, we definitely have Hartavor looming in the background and the Golan on the yeah, visible from where I am. But it, and, and just off to the west, all of the beautiful rolling hills of the lower Galil. And it does for me what the, the uh, Harei Yehuda do for you. And the Harei Yerushalayim, as you, as you make your commute to Yerushalayim, um, where you live with the, with the strong connections with Derech Avot and the, the, the tremendous history of that area of the country. And where I live with an equally tremendous history, uh, perhaps a little bit harder to uncover and discover, um, but it is, it's so beautiful that there are so many areas vastly different one from the other that speak to the different parts of Am Yisrael. And we will always remain the Shvatim, each one of us bringing to the table what it is that we can bring. And that I moved to Yisachar and Naftali does not make me a Bat Yisachar or Bat Naftali, but it definitely makes me think differently about my life and about what it is that I can contribute to Am Yisrael. And perhaps it's those kochot that's also informing my work right now. And uh, I'm, I'm just so gratified to hear if you're not knocking those who live in Shimon. Totally. Because Shimon is an essential element to Am Yisrael. Totally. But the, the, and, I, and, and I hope as Rosh Hashem to have the opportunity to get to know you more. But I could have summed you up within the first five minutes as a Bat Yehuda in its entirety with all of that malchut and with all of that, that strength and the, and the regalness that you bring to the, and, uh, and you and I'm by, by extension, your family bring to Am Yisrael and, uh, Kamatov Shachazart. It's good that you came back. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that tomorrow. Really, really, I do. Okay, I don't want to have to end this, but we're going to have to wrap up. I see our time. I sort of usually have a round of lightning questions, but honestly, you've also answered some of them in the most beautifully organic way. And so I think I just want to end with two, uh, with two questions. Uh, one is, uh, what, do you, what books are currently on your nightstand? That's a question I can never leave behind. Okay. Well, um, I have a friend in, in Ramat Bechemesh who has a library. And when she sees me, she's constantly bringing me books. Why? Because when I turned 40, I said, Yala, I'm going to start reading fiction. Up until then, nice. I do not, yes. I have not read fiction at all. And I said, it's important for me to be broad and wide. It's an, as with this, with this move up to the north, I wanted to extend my exposure. Very nice. So I just read a book called A Thousand Acres by a woman named Jane Smiley. I think Jane Sweeney, Jane Smiley, I don't recall. Yeah, Sweeney. Uh, yeah. Sweeney, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, I could relate to very, very much in terms of the her landscape, but beyond that was extraordinarily written. But even beyond that book, the one I had read right before that my friend Kara keeps on peppering me with was... Eleanor Oliphant is okay, is, is doing all right or something like that. It was a, it, it's, it's also just a beautifully written and very powerful book. And it's so, it's like, it's like tasting dessert for the first time reading fiction. <laughs> and I feel I had filled myself up on all of this roughage and all of the, and, you know, and the meat of, and potatoes of life. And now I'm being exposed to people who can really make me think about the world and the complex flavors of the world in a new way, a totally, totally new course even. Yeah. You know what, you know what I'm also loving about this conversation, which is that for everyone listening, and I think most of us know that this is true, but it's a great reminder of how much life is a journey and that we grow and develop in unexpected ways that we would never have even thought of for ourselves. And also is a great lesson in here, I'm just saying, just to put things like really in everyone's face. It's a great lesson in accepting and flowing with the creativity and unexpectedness of our spouses, um, which is not, which is not uh, something that is, should be taken for granted. You know, that's one of the 
the, the big keys in the world of, uh, of couples counseling, of being open to our partners, and also children, by the way, works just the same for them, being open to their ability to change and transform, which at once is, is scary sometimes, and, it's, and it forces us to also be flexible. But if we're able to find a harmony within that, which of course harmony has moments of disharmony, but if we can find harmony in that, then it can breed so many new things in ourselves and in our relationships. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So the third book on my night table, which is uh, a nod to what you just said, is um, is uh, Michael Pollan's The Food We Eat, yes. which I was having me reread for the third time. He goes through Michael Pollan just about uh, annually. Yes. He's gone through it about, but these are, but, but he's a fabulous writer who is then presenting all the elements that um, are so much a central part of our lives right now. Yeah, it's a great, a great book. Okay, another, another question. Mm-hmm. Okay, your favorite tefillah, but you're going to have to give it in one sentence because we're winding down here on the time. <laughs> Um, my favorite tefillah is, I, I can't, I gotta say three. One is <laughs> Elokhine Shama, and then the second okay. is Asher Yatsar, and then the third, which I have tremendous kavana, is Belim Kalalai Nafshi Sidom and Nafshi Kafar Lakotia. And I'll end with that. Wow. Okay. Uh, last one. If you could have, uh, coffee or tea, whatever you drink, or naturally squeezed a uh, cup of orange juice, whatever it is that's, that you like, with uh, with someone, with anyone, alive, dead, um, famous, mundane, who would it be? Ira. Oh, okay. Um, love that. Before we end, uh, I would like to just briefly mention the Matan Summer Programs, which Tamar is the coordinator for, along with Serena Novik. Uh, I wanted just to tell everyone about the programs. The first one this summer is a week-long in-person program taking place from June 27th to July 1st, and it will study uh, Israel's flora and fauna. And the second is a two-week Zoom program taking place from July 4th to July 15th. Uh, The classes will take place during Israel's afternoon and U.S. morning times, uh, intended to make Matan learning accessible to our annual summer students who are still not able to get here this year. Uh, we'll dig deep into Jewish FOMO, finding our place within the family of nations. Uh, and Tamar uh, will be uh, coordinating, uh, I'll make a brief, very brief appearance uh, in uh, in one of the programs. And, uh, and I really wanted to thank you for this conversation. I have to tell you, this has been uh, soul opening and heart opening in a way that I didn't I didn't even anticipate. So uh, I'm really grateful that we've had this opportunity to sit here. Thank you. Uh, and this stuff for me, this be the first of many conversations, personal, public, that you and I have. I mean, I would really, really look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.